Hello, you're very welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. Unsanitised, a seed of a plan to reopen schools. Hello, hello, you're very welcome to this special episode of If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshod.net. This is Simon Lewis. Yes, it's another special COVID-19 episode. When will this ever end? Well, look, the thing really, I suppose, and the reason I'm doing this special episode so soon after the last one and the one before it is because we're in a complete mess. And the thing that struck me most about the debate around reopening and even the partial reopening of schools is the fact that everyone involved in the discussions, whether it was Norma Foley or Josepha Madigan, whether it was John Boyle or any of the other union leaders, or even if it's one of the various charities advocating for children with additional needs, is that all of them share the same goal, which is to get schools open as quickly as possible. And this is despite the disgraceful carry-on over the last two weeks where they've spent their time burning bridges with each other and dividing and conquering teachers and parents and anyone else they could possibly find that could fall out with each other. However, what also has struck me is that none of these people have the first iota of a plan put together to ensure that it actually happens. And in this episode, I'm going to try and suggest a plan for not only a partial reopening, but also for a full reopening of schools. A few days ago, I wrote a piece on Twitter that seemed to catch the eye of a number of people. Um, the point of this thread uh, really was to try and explain how the government had failed yet again uh, to get schools even partially reopened. And as much as it's easy to lay the blame at their door, which, and, and in fairness, I'm not trying to defend them in any way. It is absolutely the government's fault uh, that we're in the mess that we're in. I also felt that the leadership of the unions and the various agencies that advocate for children with additional needs also had to take some of the share of the blame. And the reaction I received from this thread of tweets uh, was varied, with the usual responses uh, that I would expect as a teacher putting anything out into the public, basically telling me to get back to work or go on the pup or whatever it might be. And I also had a number of Adam Harris's friends in particular not happy that I singled him out as an example of the misdirected ire. And since then, I suppose he's teamed up with Inclusion Ireland and Down Syndrome Ireland to ask for a meeting to discuss the reopening of schools with the Department of Education. And the letter was much more measured, let's say, than some of the interviews uh, I've been hearing. I suppose the irony maybe of someone finding out that Down Syndrome Ireland had suspended all of its face-to-face services was a bit of a black eye to agencies who were advocating for children with additional needs. However, I'm not here to um, punch down. I think uh, I feel absolutely awful for uh, children with additional needs who haven't been able to access education in any way, shape or form. And I would agree that we need to get children well, all children, but especially children who cannot access remote learning, whether that's through an additional needs or whether that's through poverty or whatever it might be, back 
uh, into education because the only thing and I've, I mean I suppose my uh, the only thing that can absolutely be agreed upon is remote learning does not work for the most vulnerable children and all remote learn and all this does this this time does is it widens the gap between the haves and the have-nots and we see this now and I know I advocated back in um, December that we might consider closing schools completely for the month of January until case numbers came down and then make up that time later in the year uh, so that everybody so children didn't lose out now obviously that didn't happen Maybe it's still a solution that we could close for February uh, and make up the three weeks of February. One of those weeks would be a midterm break, obviously, uh, but uh, make up those three weeks, maybe at Easter and maybe at a, maybe later in the year and so on. So, look, uh, obviously, I don't think that any of that is going to happen, but it's a better solution, obviously, than uh, what's going on, which is. Uh, these children are not getting education um, and we need to get them educated, but we can't do it right now. And we know all the reasons why it can't be done right now. Um, you know, I suppose, I mean, apart from that, I found myself watching, you know, a lot of television um, in the last one and listening to a lot of radio and listening and hearing the various players and the interviewers and they're generally the interviewers always asking the same question. Uh, to, so like if they're talking to a union leader or they're talking to the minister or they're talking to whoever it might be, they ask the same question. When will schools reopen? They always ask that question. When can you tell me schools will reopen? And to be honest, their, their tone suggests that they're running out of patience with Seesaw and Google Classroom rather than actually caring about education. I'm only joking. Kind of. Um, anyway, and the union person, because it's usually a union person uh, or it's the minister, generally tries to avoid answering the question. Now, if you watch back, you'll see how they have a new script uh, in the last few days. Um, because remember, your union was all for reopening schools without the plan until the CEC had a soprano style intervention and stopped the union leaders from making it such a calamitous mistake. But the thing is, asking when, when are schools going to reopen to me is a bizarre question. It's a bizarre question because the answer can't be a particular date. You can't say, and they have done already, the Department of Education I know is the 1st of February we hope to have schools open. It's a stupid thing to say because we can't actually have a particular date. It's as if the media think the reason that schools are closed is because teachers want something tangible in order for them to open. Like we're staying, oh no, no, we need, we need this and then we'll open the school. It's not it, you know, I, and I, look, I don't blame them. The minister does seem to be trying to offer things like childcare packages for some reason as a way to sort of convince, in uh, inverted commas, uh, teachers and SNAs to go back to work. And that's another thing that annoys me, the go back to work. We are working. We are working. We are working. Sorry, I'm just trying that no, Norma Foley technique. You know, the, you know, if you repeat schools are safe, schools are safe, schools are safe over and over and over again, that if I go, we are working over and over again, people will just, you know, believe it or something. But seriously, we are working and damn hard at the moment. There are hundreds of thousands of people in this country, uh, not teachers, working from home right now. And I have not heard a single person say they need to go back to work. Why is teaching any different? Is it because we provide other services other than teaching? Well, I think the answer to that is very obvious. Of course we do. We provide childminding for free. And that's okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that with any disrespect to teachers or to parents. We do provide free childcare. We do provide uh, things like that, uh, as well as the education. It just, it, they just happen to, you know, be, 
be, be about services. There's nothing insulting about that. It just is a fact. So look, what people are missing in some cases is childcare, but some people are also missing other aspects like respite, like therapies, like education. But at the same time, uh, I think teaching being singled out for you go back to work or go in the pub is very unhelpful when we've got several thousand people also working from home who aren't being told to go in the pub. Um, but anyway, let's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm moving away and I'm digressing and uh, there, there's no point to that because I want to come up with a plan here. Um, because I want to go back to that bizarre question of when are, we op- when are you going to reopen schools uh, to, to, to the very two. Look, it's a stupid question. It's like asking, when can we open the pubs? When can we open the restaurants? When can we open the hairdressers? Because the answer is actually the same. When can we open schools is the same as those questions. Because the answer is when community transmission is low, we can start opening up things. Like that's the answer to the question. There isn't a date. You can't say the 1st of February or the 5th of February or after midterm break or whatever it might be. Schools are no different. I'd like to think by now, People have finally realised that that mantra that schools are safe was ridiculous. And then the idea that it was actually the travelling to schools that was actually the problem was even more ridiculous. However, when you are locked in your house with your children 24 hours a day, you will hang on to any hope that they will be back at school. Hey, I'm I'm one of those people. And for parents of children with additional needs, though, even more so. And totally understandably. But the fact of the matter is that the most dangerous thing anyone can do right now is spend time together. Many of us, you know, in the country are clearly very happy to take that risk. I mean, case numbers remain amazingly high considering uh, it hasn't been Christmas for four weeks and all the, and the lockdown has been on for about that long. You know, and we still have two and a half thousand cases consistently a day, new cases consistently a day. And these are symptomatic cases. And as you've seen, you know, and, and the thing is, we're now seeing and we, we are seeing many of these people who are quite happy to take the risk of meeting other people are sadly in hospital now. And unfortunately, worse, some of them have died. And nobody disagrees that there isn't an element of risk every time you leave the house. You know, I mean, we get that. But when you do, when you leave your house, you know you're taking a risk of getting COVID-19. You make sure you give your best se- yourself the best chance of not catching COVID-19. For example, if you go to do your weekly shop or you go to do your shopping, generally, you're, you're first of all you're, you probably are not, uh, only going you're going less often to the to the supermarket. Some people used to go to supermarkets every day to get the bits. You know, most people are now going maybe weekly, or maybe they're getting it delivered. You know, and, and forget them. Let's go for the people that are going out of their house. But you try and do your best to go as few times as possible per week. And you always make sure to wear a mask when you're in the supermarket. You also sanitize your hands. And you probably spray down the trolley with sanitizer that's provided for you. And you also try and avoid hanging around very long in there. And equally, the people working in these supermarkets also try to ensure that they don't catch COVID-19 because there's a risk when they work, they will catch it. So they also wear a mask and they also impose rules that everyone who is in that same supermarket also wears a mask. They also limit the numbers of people coming into that into, into the store, into the supermarket, to ensure that the place doesn't become busy or crowded. Um, and there's very little chance of bumping into each somebody. And they also have proper ventilation systems in place. And they surround their cashiers with perspex screens. And many of them also wear gloves and other, uh, and other forms of PPE. And they are funded for that by their superiors. Now, as a teacher or an SNA, this is what we get to reduce our risk. This is all we get to reduce our risk. An open window. 
that is until it gets cold um, because uh, because you know if it gets cold you have to close the window so we only have an open window when it's warm enough to have an open window um, and that's in actually in the Department of Education guidelines on ventilation um, they have stated that if it gets too cold you close the window uh, teachers also have to supply their own face masks and SNAs um, are supplied with a school supplied face mask but that's it that is the only protection a teacher or an SNA or anyone else entering a school has there is no physical distance distancing none of the children wear masks and not that not not the most of them could and, and shouldn't be expected to and I'm sure even for the most exacerbated of parents they have to be able to see that the risk of catching COVID-19 in a school is much much higher than in a supermarket than in a hospital than in you know probably yeah in a restaurant actually in fact the figures are there to say that schools are the fifth most um uh, the, the fifth the, the fifth biggest place, the most common place where you can catch COVID-19, you know, and the other and the four places above it are residential settings. And yet, with these very limited things, all school staff still worked in those settings from September when cases around the transmission rates around the country were quite low to December when they were starting to get very, very risky. And we saw the effect of that. Now we have very, very fuzzy data on school transmissions because the measuring tool that is um, used by the HSC is extremely conservative about whether a case was caught in the community or whether it was caught in the school and it doesn't follow um, international best practice uh, on, on, on that. And there's absolutely, and, and as a result, there's absolutely no faith whatsoever that the official HSC data is actually factual. And, but even taking their figures as they are, I mean, even as, as, as conservatives they are, there is certainly, and we've seen the graphs, there is a direct correlation between community cases or general transmission rates and the school cases. And when general transmission rose, school cases also rose. And knowing this information actually is useful because we can actually start to make a plan for reopening schools even if the figures may not be exactly true or they're conservative, they still have a good correlation. One, uh, and, you know, it's directly uh, proportional. So transmission rates in the community are high. School rates in the community get higher as well. And it's all proportional. Now, I know there's a body of school staff um, as well. Before I go on, um, there's a number of there's a number and, and it's it's out there in the community. I've I've seen it and I've heard it and 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 and, and all that. And look, people are entitled to their opinions. They have an all in or no one in policy, um, which is based around an idea of inclusion. I think but, you know. So they would say that it's 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 wrong that we um, put children with additional needs into schools and their peers don't come into schools because basically it highlights the fact that they have you know that, that they have additional needs and it's not right to do that. I I don't particularly agree. And just to just to you know, um, kind of understand it, you know, they say it flies in the face of inclusion. Basically, now to me, children who are in school, um, you know, sorry, their their idea really is that children who are if if you do this, that children will be further stigmatized. Okay, and it flies in the face of inclusion. But I don't buy it, to be honest with you. I don't buy this line of argument, and this is where I probably disagree with quite a few people. In Ireland, to me. Well, it's not to me. I think it's, it, it's clear. Inclusion is a complete illusion, an absolute illusion. And I go on about this in my regular podcast. But Irish schools are not inclusive. 
they're not inclusive at all. And I don't think they're alone in not being inclusive. But in Ireland in particular, 97% of schools by default are not inclusive in, in any way, shape or form. Now, I usually, and, and when I say 97%, I'm talking uh, from a different angle. But hear me out on this because, I mean, it's been a while since I've brought religion to my podcast. And I, 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 I actually, funny now that I'm saying it, I, gosh, it has been a while since I've talked about religion in my podcast, religion in schools. Uh, but anyway, I'll come back to that someday. But I'm going to bring it in very briefly. Okay, 97% of schools are not inclusive by definition because they can't possibly be. If you are in any school promoting one particular view of the world from a denominational perspective, you automatically cannot be inclusive to someone that doesn't share that view. And that's just fact. I mean, it's no, there's no, no one can argue that. I mean, they can argue, but they're wrong. And I, I'm not saying that just as a cocky thing. You know, if you are saying that Jesus was the Messiah, and I, I come from a Jewish background, so I don't believe that. And I say to you, look, I, I can't come, I, I just can't accept that worldview. And so, well, you know, that's the worldview. That's the view of our school. Um, you know, you, you can't change that to make it inclusive to me. So it's non-inclusive because, you know, it's equally valid for someone who's Catholic to say Jesus is the Messiah as it is for somebody who isn't Catholic or Christian to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They're, they're both they're both based on they're not based on facts. They're based on faith. And um, and ultimately, you can't have an inclusive system that's based on a faith system. But moving moving back, sorry, I, I, I get excited when I talk about religion in schools for those of you who haven't listened to this podcast before. It's the same when it comes to inclusion with additional needs. Okay, slightly the same. Not, it's not a direct analogy, but it's, it, it's to make a point. Schools don't receive anywhere near enough the supports or resources to be able to call themselves inclusive to children with additional needs. In in both of my examples, the religious one and this one, schools can only do their best to be as inclusive as possible, but they can't call themselves inclusive. However, one thing I can't agree on is treating everyone the same means that we treat children equally. I mean, this, this is the thing. If we, we get this all in or no one in, isn't treating children equally. If a child can't access education via remote learning due to an additional need, we need to find ways to ensure they do receive an education. And I don't think it's unreasonable that that comes in the form of face-to-face learning in schools when it is safe to do so. And the question really is, how do we manage to do it safely rather than anything else? So finally, I come to my suggestion of the seed or a draft of a plan. Now, my plan comes with a few variables and um, sorry, I needed some tea there um, as I was coming to the most exciting point. Um, and I have a number of variables. I think it's seven variables. Variable one is we need basic structures to be in place. Like it's, 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 a, it's, it's you can't do anything until we, have ver- until we have basic structures. And right now, the number of new cases being measured in Ireland is meaningless because we aren't actually testing asymptomatic close contacts. And if we're even to think about considering opening schools in any way, we need this to be in place in the community. I am not interested in these special arrangements for school children. Oh no, we'll open up uh, testing of everybody for that goes to school. No, 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 no. We need every close contact for any case that comes up to be tested in the community everywhere. Because we're not talking about just the children here. Like for example, you know, it's school children. Like, you know, we need like people live with people you know and and it doesn't and, and people live with people who go to school and if we're not testing people that don't go to the school that might live with someone who goes to school then we have a problem okay we have a massive problem so we need everyone to be tested if they are close contacts um 
you know, for example, I'll give you an example here. My, I, I got COVID, um, as I've said already in this podcast. Uh, myself and my wife got COVID. And we both had symptoms, and we both got tested, and we both came out positive. There is absolutely no way I can think of that our son didn't have, didn't catch COVID. The thing is, though, he didn't have any symptoms, so he hasn't been tested. But I mean, he clearly must have had it. Like we were cuddling and 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 you know and, and hugging and and kissing and and you know that like we were having a very, fairly he was having a fairly normal life. You know, we didn't isolate from him. You know, he's six; he can't actually care for himself. But I mean. We obviously treated him as if he had the virus, but it's very easy to see what can go wrong in a situation like this if some people are being tested and some people aren't tested. I mean, that's the most basic structure that needs to be in place. But there's other missing basics. Actual mass testing. I was so annoyed that the unions agreed to use the term mass testing when clearly nothing close to mass testing was happening in schools. Um, Basically like they have in other countries. Look, I'll say no more, but I mean, it it was a ridiculous, ridiculous thing. And obviously it goes without saying that we need adequate funding and resources uh, for schools and none of which we can, um, you know, we can, we can guarantee. But at the most basic, PPE should be funded properly. Don't forget we've had a 40% cut to that grant. And, you know, no one could, I mean, I bet they're going to come out with saying, oh, well, you know, we weren't in school for 40% of the time now anyway. So it doesn't matter. That was that was decided well before the decision was not to come back to school. And cleaning costs need to be increased you know, at the minute, cleaning costs are basically keeping the school in the, case, in, the, in, the, in the way it should have been in normal times, not in COVID times. We need it to be increased. But at worst, we'll keep it to current levels, let's say. Okay, so that's our basic structures. Let's look at variable two. We can't do anything until that happens. So you get zero school openings until that happens. Variable number two is to start measuring school cases properly. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, for example, I, I think we should look at the ECDC um, for our, our cases. Um, and for those of you who haven't heard of the ECD, it's the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, and they measure the prevalence of COVID-19 across Europe and the world, where they get the data anyway and they use it. And interestingly, to me, I suppose to anybody, Ireland decided, the Irish government decided, they wouldn't use ECDC methods for measuring the cases in schools. No, they came up with their own idea. And this basically has led to the argument that school cases in Ireland are being underreported, which they are. And we have enough evidence to suggest that they definitely are. I mean, there's plenty of people uh, finding cases and uh, and showing that they don't, totally don't correlate with uh, the HSE's uh, arguments. So I would argue that closing schools should actually have nothing to do with the HSE data on school transmissions. It's not convincing enough. Um, you know, they had a webinar with with you know nearly twenty thousand people showed up to it, and they and they and the, oh, it was an awful webinar. It was so it was actually very embarrassing, and, and it really did the HSE people no favors whatsoever. Um, and it, it, it did uh, it, it failed in its attempt to um, to to help people. Uh, to help teachers, staff and anybody else working in schools think it was safe. But I mean, that's because the data they're showing is not believable. And whether or not we open schools needs to be linked to actually overall transmission levels in in, in an area, Um, whether that's the country, whether it's a city or or a county or whatever. We need... um, We need to actually forget about school, school cases. We need to look at overall transmission rates. And that's the data. That's the variable we need to be looking at. So let's move on to that variable, which is variable number three, which is now using, now that we're using the correct data, we need to decide the number of cases in a country or in a county or in an area where it's deemed 
where, where we can decide what is safe and what is not safe. Now, I think a number like saying, oh, over a thousand cases in the country uh, per day is not a very good metric or 500 cases in the country or less than 10 in the country isn't really the best metric. But I do think the cases per 100,000 in the last seven days, for example, is a good metric because it kind of says what the rate of where we're at, really, I suppose. And um, we need to decide when that number reaches certain thresholds and what we open up or close down um, when it comes to the number of people accessing school buildings. Now, I'd see this on a very, on a tiered basis. So my idea is that we'd be looking at a tiered model. And using this data, we can create a spectrum of possibilities for schools. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to uh, align with the rather arbitrary levels, you know, the levels one to five that we're using for the rest of the country, because even when we're in level three, schools could probably remain fully open uh, in terms of risk. Um, and certainly when it comes to level five, um, because that's the highest level the country can be put into, you know, schools could probably remain fully open-ish um, at the bottom end of level five. But as cases become ridiculous as they have, you know, you, you have such a range of possibilities that it just doesn't make sense to put schools in with the levels one to five. So ultimately we need to look at you know, the transmission, community transmission and trends and make decisions around that. So that's variable number three, the rates per thousand, uh, hundred thousand uh, in the last seven days as our variable. Variable four. Now this might be slightly controversial, but in some ways it might make complete sense. So hear me out. If we are opening up schools, there's definitely a risk that people will get sick. You know, I mean, as I said, Considering, you know, like if someone goes into, if someone works anywhere with people, there is a risk they'd get sick and they know that risk when they're doing it. So doctors and nurses, you know, we've heard the arguments before, doctors and nurses going to school into work knowing they might catch COVID-19, as do supermarket workers, guardie and blah, 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 blah. And they have, and, the, and at some point you, there is a level where we have to accept there is a risk that uh, we could catch COVID-19. But is that, does that risk balance the benefits of an education. So we have to ask that, ask that question. And despite the best will in the world, no matter how careful schools are, there will be outbreaks. Even when we had very low uh, cases in the country, there were some outbreaks in schools. Um, and that's, that's at any level, you know? So my fourth variable is around hospital capacity, okay? And this is, so it's an external variable to schools. If hospitals are under pressure, Schools can't open. Simple as that. So if there aren't enough, so ultimately we have to look at the capacity of hospitals as another variable. So if we plug this into our into our formula or system, we can then we can then make decisions around that. So if if there are if we're if hospitals are you know have good capacity levels, well then we're we're okay. You know we, we might consider opening the schools at particular levels. But if hospitals are jam packed, why would you add to the problem? You know, and that's. Variable four. It's a controversial one, but it, it's there and regard it or disregard it if, if you wish. Variable five is time. Quite simply, if we're moving from one tier to another, time is needed for that to happen. When Norma Foley and Josephine Madigan decided to make their surprise announcement on Friday night uh, last week that we'd be reopening, it meant that every school had three working days to organise absolutely everything. And you know what? I'd say most schools did their very best to do that, even though they had the feeling that it was all going to fall apart. And schools schools basically have to reorganise bubbles, reorganise pods, reorganise and reconfigure their risk assessments and do all their paperwork around that. And it takes time. 
Okay, and initially it takes more time because, you know, the first time you do anything takes a lot more time. And then once it's in place, then you can move from tier to tier and you'll need less time. But initially, if we're going to come up with any kind of plan for tiered opening and closing, in order to do this, once we get our plan, because we need the plan first before we do all these jobs, we need at least, I would say, one full week to get paperwork together. And that's very, very, very conservative. I to be honest, I, just, I'm go I really struggled to get uh, with, with the three days announcement. And even if I had a full week, I don't know if I would have got it together. But I would, I'd do it. You know, I think we'd probably do it. Um, and in reality, you know, we probably need more than a week. But I imagine schools would take the hit of trying to just work really, really hard for that week to get, you know, their plans in place for the different tiers um, as, uh, or, uh, as, 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 as it were. So I don't know. Time is my fifth variable. My sixth variable is around adequate staffing. And again, this might be a little bit controversial. At the moment, schools don't have enough staff for a hybrid model, a blended model of education, remote learning and face-to-face -face learning. And we need to utilise other people for that to work. Um, so if you, like the current, that, that idiotic idea that the Norma Foley had about, uh, the, the, you know, around the special education end of things, where all set staff were in school, that meant that there were a significant number of children that were getting um, no support whatsoever um, because they didn't fall under school support plus. So the school supports and the classroom support uh, people got nothing. Uh, I mean, they only got normal remote learning from their teacher. So, I mean, it's, it's an idiotic plan. We need to make sure that we have more people. And this is a very good time to utilise final year student teachers, um, I think. Because they aren't in college right now, you know, because somehow, it, it, <laughs> well, they don't need childcare, do they? And maybe I'm being unfair here, but at the same time, they're, they're not in the school and they're not actually getting their teaching practice. So we can kill these birds uh, with one stone and they need to be on standby. So we can have a system where student teachers are on standby to take on classes in schools to make up for the shortfalls by whatever plan comes along. So, for example, every teaching principal, for example, could become admin right now, which they should be, and their teaching duties are covered by student teachers. That that could happen. And, you know, as a as a as, a, as another kicker, they could do this oh, I hate it. But they could do Drihid, for example, in their final year. Well, actually that was my solution to Drihid in the first place. I, I sorry, I I, I I I reverse I think this is a great idea to test out Drihid with student teachers. I think that's the way we should do Drihid. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, gosh, I can't believe I've gone through a podcast in this and I've, I've actually talked about religion and Drihid, my two fav my two subjects that make me so angry. Uh, but anyway, they, they could be fully covered by these student teachers with Drihid completed by the end of a pending satisfaction from their college. They would be tested by their college. And I think as well, uh, adding a few thousand students into the system would be massively helpful and they would be paid for it when they're needed as substitutes, they would be paid for their work. I'm not saying this is free work, this should be free. It shouldn't be a way to exploit students and not pay them. They should be paid. Pandemics are expensive and we have to show how much we give a damn about our children if we want to do it properly. We already fund primary education absolutely appallingly. So I think this is a possible sixth variable that we could do, additional staffing. They're my variables, okay? I don't know, as I said, a couple of them are a bit controversial, but, you know, I, 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 I'm, what I'm trying to do is um, plant the seed of an idea. And there could be many more variables. I, I'm just, uh, one thing I didn't do is I didn't put any numbers for each tier because that certainly can't be my call. I am far from someone who could make a call like that. I have no 
uh, expertise um, in whatsoever in, in which tier things should be in. But I imagine if we are in the situation we find ourselves in now with such high transmission rates in the country community that we are not uh, that we're in the position of tier one, let's say, remote learning for all, uh, which would be the highest tier. OK, so I'm talking about my tiers now. OK, so got the variables and let's go to the tiers. So the next, so the first tier would be everyone gets remote learning. And I know that won't satisfy many children who can't access remote learning. But when it is unsafe for people to be in the building, we have to, that, we have to either accept that. Or, I mean, the other option is we close schools completely and make up the time in, different, uh, in a different way. And that is also an option. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, the next tier, the second tier would be to open up special schools and special classes at a maximum of 50% capacity. Now, that's a little bit difficult and it would mean some students would be remote learning in special schools and special classes and others would be face-to-face -face in schools. We'd obviously have to have staffing available to do that. Now, the decisions as to who would come to school could be a local arrangement, uh, which is, again, controversial, but guidelines would need to be produced here. Perhaps parental wishes because there are many, many more parents who do not want their children to go to school at these high-risk times uh, than, than the media might suggest. And others uh, might be around uh, the ability to actually access remote learning because, again, many children with additional needs can access remote learning. In fact, most students with additional needs can actually access remote learning at the moment. And to be honest, this is the most difficult tier to, to, to organise, the second tier of about 50% in special classes and special schools. The third tier is maybe up to 100% special settings to be open. And this, again, would be dependent on the size of rooms, the size of classes, square metres per pupil. And 100% would not be possible if rooms are too small, for example. Lots of other variables, obviously, similar to the second tier. I won't go on too much about that because it's quite similar. We're just kind of saying, look, we, we would open up uh, up to 100% of special settings rather than 50%. Tier 4 would be to open up the, uh, the open up schools to children of frontline workers as well. So we're adding frontline workers and children at risk. So these are the pupils who might now have a, uh, additional needs, so your SSB, but aren't able to engage remotely. So any child who has not been able to engage remotely, and by now we have good data on those right now. So even if you did it now, it probably wouldn't be abused. It couldn't be abused because you already now have three weeks of remote learning, two to three weeks of remote learning at this stage and all of last year's remote learning. And you know who was able to engage and who wasn't able to engage. Um, it's difficult to organise, but schools will know who the pupils are. OK, so these are the people in tier four. Now, let's move to more safe. Again, Again, the, the risk uh, is, is down again. Tier five, add in children on SSP even if they can access remote learning. So you're just adding a few more children. Maybe we don't need a tier five. I'm just, but maybe you do. Tier six, we move on to essential workers' children. Um, and then tier seven, everybody else. So at all of these tiers, there would need to be a rule um, of a maximum number of pupils per square metre of it in a room. I think that's really, really uh, essential. We can't, because no cla classrooms are not the same sizes. In my school, I'm in a very modern building, so my classrooms are bigger than, let's say, a school, a very old school. Um, so it would not be fair to say, well, everyone goes in, you know, uh, for, for my school to be treated the same as another school. So decisions would have to be made around that. There are my seven tiers, okay? And yeah, it could be very, very tricky. And it's very, very open to abuse. But it does give some form of a structure. And should staff's children be a priority? I suppose I, you, you may have noticed I didn't actually mention uh, staff's children. So just have, a, I just have a think of this while I take another sip of this tea, which is getting colder by the second. Um, it's also, you know, 
should staff's children be a priority to come to school? I didn't mention them. Now, it's tricky, especially if the child goes to a different school. Do you know, I mean, if it comes to the same school, I mean, you could probably, you could probably work it out. But if they go to a different school, why should another school take up the slack uh, because you're a teacher? I mean, well, maybe collegiality would be something. However, to be honest, and I say this as a parent myself, we actually can't expect to have more advantages over any other essential worker in terms of childcare, in my opinion. In fact, I was, I'm really disappointed that childcare was so high on the agenda with the INTO and when they were when they were negotiating with Norma Foley, that it was not the number one priority for teachers. It was it was it was basically the number one priority for teachers was not being dead. Childcare came much lower down that list. Um, and while it's something that obviously has to be taken into account, I don't think it should be um, it should be any different to anyone else's essential workers' needs of childcare. But that means if we're going to do this, it does mean that there has to be enough childcare available in a community for it to work. We can't just say, ah, oh, well, just sort out your own childcare and not have any. It, childcare needs to also be open enough that, that also uh, these children can come to it. Look, look, I don't know. I'm going to stop now-ish uh, because, I mean, I suppose, where am I? Gosh, I'm coming up to 40 minutes. I didn't expect this to be so long. But I, I don't know if this is a good plan or not, really. But it is a plan. And right now we have no plan. And we've wasted over three weeks with no plan already, with bickering and fighting and silliness and really, really, I mean, making, as Aidan O'Reardon says, and, I, and look, Aidan O'Riordan um, is, um, is an interesting uh, TD. I, 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 I problems. Uh, <laughs> he knows. We, 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 we've, we've had a few problems with each other. But he really was very impressive in the doll yesterday when I'm recording this, when he when he spoke uh, very eloquently about how what's been going on for the last three weeks. Every time either of the ministers involved in education speak, they make things worse. And that's actually true. And, and, and like was the takeout line of the whole of the day. And um, and he also said that the best thing the minister could do would be to say nothing. And to be honest with you, it was it was true because Norma Foley couldn't resist replying to him and it was just awful. It was a shame. It was a shameful kind of thing uh, and it, it just didn't look good and it's still, it just show, goes to show where we're at. So look, that aside, I didn't want to be given out uh, again but I, I, I suppose I, I, I couldn't, I can't but uh, give out about this madness that's been going on for the last few weeks. We've wasted over three weeks now and I'm certainly not saying that my plan is even the one we should use. In fact, it, I, I, I would, I would say that something that I make up in about a day or two is not the plan that someone should be using. Uh, what I am saying is it might be the start of a template, maybe, for a plan, the seed of a plan. We need to be able to open up schools at certain levels in some way or another. We, nobody can disagree with that. We can't just not open up schools to children who cannot access remote learning. Otherwise, we should just close schools completely and make up the time another time. It's not fair to widen that gap to our vulnerable children. I, 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 would, I feel very strongly about that. You know, the all-in or the no-one-in, I don't think cuts it, um, to be honest with you. There are children who cannot access remote learning and we need to provide them with an education. And it's not fair to simply go, well, tough luck. Okay, either we have to come up with a system where some of them, there's a way we can do face-to-face -face learning or we should just close schools completely and do no remote learning until it's safe to get people into school and then we make up the time in another way. And I don't know if teachers would like that or whether they wouldn't like that, but that's just my opinion and maybe it's not a very nice opinion, but it's an opinion nonetheless. Um, anyway, you know, we have to kind of uh, 
need to be protected, obviously. I'm not saying that, you know, we should just go in with nothing. But there needs to be leveled tiers of risk, as I've gone through. I've done seven tiers of risk. Uh, It's arbitrary. Um, But, you know, I've done these leveled tiers of risk and I've done the variables. And given that we can't trust the HSE school transmission rates, but equally, you know, we, we can trust the fact, we can absolutely trust that, um, normal rates directly correlate with um, school rates. So we can use general transmission rates to make the decisions. I, I would say that we actually do have a good variable and that's general transmission rates. Let's forget about school transmission rates now. They, they're not believable. And what I've got there now is a seed of an idea where we have an actual variable that's community transmission rates or just transmission rates where we can decide to make a tiered um, leveled model for um school reopenings and partial reopenings and so on and the unions you know well you know and and the unions and the ministers are probably still sitting around coming up with you know as far as i'm concerned from what i can gather the minister and the unions are still sitting around uh, with john boyle probably apologizing to the minister for 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 what he did last week and he should apologize for what he did to the minister last week it was not on um but um you know the, he 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 was all he was all for norman foley's plan as we know and the cec stopped him from doing it and then he came out he didn't he pretended that that that, that it was his that uh, you know that oh well you know he came up basically and it, oh, sorry i'm ranting uh but um anyway um they are probably just sitting around now going, OK, now now the dust has settled. Let's get back to trying to figure out how we can get those teachers back to work. Um, and with these kite-flying, idiotic solutions that, that basically are trying to demonise school staff. So, for example, you know, the latest kite I heard being flown today in schools is for schools to be allowed to open voluntarily. Now, any idiot could see how that how that's going to play out. So school A up the road who wants to, who just happens to be led by a, a Fianna Fáil councillor, uh, friend or whatever, wants to, and might want to attract a few enrolments, you know, decides, ho oh, ho, we'll open the, we'll open now, hi. And um, school B down the road, well, what do they have? They have no choice but to open for fear because the school down the road is doing it, you know? So they have to open. No, we actually need a system, a system no volunteering, oh, the, the, the good schools and bold school kind of uh, thing. And it doesn't really matter what the system is, as long as it's a graduated one that's based on independent data on risk and the safety of everyone using or working in the service. It needs to be based on that, on safety. And as I said, look, I know I've ranted a little bit in this and I've gone off in various directions and so on, but I think, you know, if we can look at the, the variables I've, I've done, or there's some variables, and I've done some tiers based on, that, on those variables, Maybe that's the starting point. Don't use mine, but start coming up with variables and then start coming up with tiers based on those variables and then give the time needed for those to be implemented. Look, as I said, it's a seed of an idea. Um, but it's really, and it's really not up to me. It's up to the government to plant their own seed and then see if it grows. So that's it from me uh, for this uh, special episode. Um, sorry for kind of the ranting and maybe uh, <laughs> there was a few bits where I became completely incoherent with rage. Uh, but um, it's a really, really difficult time at the moment. This is a horrible time uh, in, 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 our, in our history. And, and, and I think we will look back on it. Uh, certainly the last few weeks is shameful um, behaviour from our, our representative bodies. Um, and uh, I just hope they are sitting down and being more sensible. Um, 
If you've enjoyed this podcast episode uh, or you've got something out of it, uh, feel free to listen to any of the other previous episodes by searching for If I Were the Minister for Education or Anshaw's podcast on your favourite podcasting app, whatever that might be, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify or all the others uh, that are out there. I'd also appreciate any positive reviews you might give uh, uh, for the podcast uh, because that will help other people find the podcast more easily. Listen, I'm going to leave it there. Coming up to the 45 minute mark. Uh, Thanks for listening and uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, soon uh, for a normal version of this podcast. I don't know when we're going to get to the next one. Um, I have it written uh, (laughs) months ago. Uh, By the time I get to it, it'll probably be out of date. Anyway, thanks there again for listening and we'll catch you again next time. Thanks a million. Bye bye.